This is episode 82 of We Going In Presents. Um, Wordsworth, this is not your first time on the podcast. We've done a lot of great work together. It's hard to believe that we haven't even talked um, you know, on the podcast since you put out your book, What Words Are Worth, Volume 1, The New Beginning, where um, we actually collaborated on that, and I came in towards the later stages with the editing um, pieces. But first off, it's great to, to have you back on the podcast, and, and how are things going with you? Man, uh, things are going pretty well, man. And yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you, you know, helping me bring that book home because, you know, it's, it's great to have somebody that has experience. You know, you, your experience encouraged me to know that it could get done. That's another thing, you know, just it's one thing to be writing and doing these things. And I think what, what stops people from actually getting these things put out a lot of times is because you're like, all right, I'm going write, to write a book. When I'm going to write a book, I'm going to record music. I'm going to do this painting. But then what? Where is it going to go? How is it going to end up where I envision it should be? And I had you with your prior experience to say, hey, man, just you take care of that part. The next thing is this, and then it'll be good. And so it was good to have you as a partner on that book. So since then, uh went back to school, so in the classroom, teaching uh, hybrid and teaching face-to-face at the same time. And that's been an experience within itself of like, uh, I love being in the classroom, having the kids and teaching the kids and then still dealing with COVID. You still have your health concerns and, and things like that. So um, now we're what August, July, August, uh, September, October, December, January, Man, we're about six, seven months in, maybe six months since then or something like that, maybe a little more. But, um, you know, I'm I'm more uh, calm and just kind of going with the, the ride of it. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. First off, thank you for your, for your kind words there. But also, how is school going looking at in-person, virtual? I know a lot of different families have different feelings on if their kids are virtual or in-person and – over here in Virginia, a lot of schools are starting to open up the past month or so. But how has school been going for you? You know, at first it was challenging because you're trying to um, maintain an audience. And if you're a teacher, we all know that one of the main things is you're in the classroom. You may get one or two kids not paying attention. you hey, get back on task, right? They're off task. But when you're looking at a screen of like 10 kids, some not even having their, their their camera on and some not paying attention, some looking at TV, you know, it just throws you off because now you're you're almost kinda in a in a in a way like babysitting now as opposed to teaching. Cause now you kinda have to say, All right, stop playing with the lights. You know, you're watching them do stuff and telling them stuff from maybe a, a parent's point of view or a guardian or just an adult point of view. There's nothing to do with your realm of teaching now. Now I'm I'm watching kids want to show off the LED lights they got in their room. So they're changing their room different colors. So now I got to stop for that. Then you got other kids that want to, they're at home, so they want to eat on the camera and show people what they're eating. Then you got a kid commenting in the chat about what that person So now you got to control the chat room. And there's so many distractions that the, the, the learning and the teaching time gets cut. Man, I mean, we're looking at an hour, taking about maybe 10 to 15, maybe 10 to 15 minutes out of that hour just to get going. So you're looking at maybe 45 to 40 minutes, maybe less than that to start teaching. Because you start teaching, because you got to do attendance. So now you got attendance for kids home, you got attendance for kids in there. Then um, 
kids popping on late, then, uh, you know, once you start in a groove, now you're handling behaviors of kids at home, making sure they're staying on point. So it, it just really, it hurts the learning a lot, man. Yeah, I bet. And, and, you know, the other thing is, you know, in this virtual environment, kids don't get a whole lot of chances to actually interact with each other. So, like, side conversations that kids are going to be having in classes turn into, like, a whole Zoom distraction for everybody. So how do you balance giving kids time to just be kids and, like, talk to each other and get some social interaction versus teaching the whole class and, and staying on schedule with everything you need to teach? Yeah, well, what I what I tend to do is just, like, you know, have projects that can involve two kids at the most a lot of time. So if it's TV production and film production, um, you know, and they they got a movie they're filming or a PSA, one person's on the camera, one person's in front of the camera. So that allows some interaction there. It's difficult for the kids at home, but they still have cameras on their computers, so they're still able to do their thing. Here's one thing that we did do that I thought was real cool. Uh, we, we started working on like a spy movie. So being that the kids are at home and they're on those screens, they look like they're already at headquarters or they're, and they're somewhere able to hack into computers. So we would use that to an advantage of how they look on screen and then have them in a movie and recording themselves just like saying, I took off camera number three, and then they would send their parts in, recorded themselves at home, and we would somehow implement it into the movie. So just making their settings and where they are um, part of the movie and finding ways to put them in as actors. So that was that way. And then for music production, um, it was a little difficult then because we use iPads and GarageBand in class, and not every kid has an iPhone or an uh, Apple device. So the kids at home, some of them didn't have a, a digital audio workstation to use, so they don't have Pro Tools or whatever on their computer. But recently, we got Soundtrap. So Soundtrap is now um, on the kids' computers, which allows um, the kids at home to make beats and even collaborate with kids in class um, if they want to do a song. So once we got Soundtrap, uh, um, a lot of the kids in my music, in one of my music class, actually all of them do soundtrack now. They love the fact that they can make beats on their on their computer at home and bring them in, and then we just make songs. So um, that's how all our collaboration has been working. It's, it deals with just kind of adjusting to the programs you have and then finding little spots here and there where they can collab. That's great. And I know we talked about this about a year ago when schools first went online and we talked about the inequities within schools and who has access at home to um, family members that can help to technology to a stable wi-fi connection in a way this pandemic has really exacerbated a lot of the inequities that we see in schools how have you been able to look at that and, and counter it and make sure that kids have a level playing field regardless of their internet at, at home or any any other of those factors well if you have an issue with internet, when we had the pandemic hit, they actually was giving mobile hotspots out. So that was um, something that the school was able to do, get mobile hotspots to some of the homes that didn't have internet, which was, was a great thing. And then for me, if a kid is missing like supplies or anything like that, so, you know, art supplies or green screen, I remember I have green screen, I bought like a green screen from Michael's that I can cut. 
So what I would do is just I take the supplies, a green screen, and I put them in an envelope and I leave them downstairs at the front desk for you. So your parents could pick them up or whenever you get a chance, you can get, get what you need as far as supplies wise to um, be a part of the class. So that's what I would do. I would just say, what do you need? And when, I, when you tell me what you need, when we're going through a certain activity, I say, okay, I'm going to leave it downstairs for you and, and you can get it, pick it up. And then I'll give you, the, the main thing is giving enough time, giving the kids enough time to complete these tasks. That's very key as well. And how's your daughter been doing with this? Because she, you know, graduated high school, first year of college. You know, those are big expectations, you know, getting to, to move into college and experience that college lifestyle, especially that freshman year. And things have looked very different for college kids as well right now. So how's she been handling the COVID-19 pandemic with her first year of college? She's fine. I mean, all her classes have been online. At one point, they were supposed to go to campus and then those classes got switched to online so she's online with everything now as of now so she's fine with that um she works as well so that she's more concerned possibly about the work aspect being that she has to go to work and and do that so she's going to be more concerned with that more than anything but as far as school school is all online my youngest went back to school as well so she's in high school she went back to school and she was trying to do the the virtual thing her grades were were terrible so we were like, you know, we can't have this because, you know, we don't want you to fail and get left back or anything like that. So you got to go back to face-to-face because if that's the best way you learn, then you need to be there because being at home, obviously, is not holding your attention or you can't ask questions. You don't feel you're getting enough attention. And it's difficult, even for me, being in front of a screen and then kids in class, there's moments when I have to leave that screen. So I have to attend to kids in a class and there's a lapse between me being able to go back to the computer and, and know that a kid asked me a question because remember I got like maybe 15 to 20 kids that are, that and right there with me that are asking a question so I do a 360 I try to start one end question hey what you need and then by the time I come around to the 360 then I'm back in front of the camera another another strategy I use too is when I'm in the classroom and it's an issue like that I'll put a timer on the screen so that way the kids at home know I'm in the, I'm walking around and by the time that timer ends or hopefully before, uh, let's say five minutes ends, I'll be right back at the screen. So they're not just waiting. They can be like, okay, so he'll be back around in about five minutes. Let me work on where I'm at. And then I can ask him any question I, I have. So those are some of the things that, um, you just have to get used to. So, my youngest, she's back in the classroom, and my oldest is just dealing with the online. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, best of luck to both of them. And you know, I was really excited this summer when you know you told me that you're working on what words are worth and really giving you know fans more of an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at your lyrics and what it means, what was going on when you wrote it. And I thought that was great. What motivated you to really give fans that extra look behind the curtain at, at your process? Well, I always wanted to do a book, but I never knew I never knew how I wanted to do it. And I try not to do things just because I can do it, but when I do it, is it impactful? So my first thought was, let me do a book and do a book of poetry because the rhymes of poetry, let me just put the book out with all my rhymes. And then I was like, well, there's only like 40 verses. That's kind of like, um, you know, that would be a short book. 
put it that way. You know, like once I put all the pages together and I looked at it, I was like, this is kind of a short book. So then what it was is I actually, the next step I started doing before it became the final version, before I, uh, I kind of connected with you, I had a version when I would just have the poem or the verse, and then I had a paragraph just elaborating on what why I think it's important. I didn't expound on four bars and nothing like that. I just said, I think it's important because this and that, and this and that is the reason why I wrote it. Then that felt too short to me too, and then it became more of a, you know, I don't feel like I'm giving people that just do because when you have verses, they're already concise. So I didn't feel like I would give people these three verses or two verses on a song, then I'm writing two paragraphs. I didn't feel like that was enough. I still felt like I was kind of um, jipping the reader in some regards. So um, I felt like it was necessary for me to elaborate because people don't get to hear my narrative voice. 16 bars in a rhyme is totally different than talking to me. So people, when they hear interviews similar to yours and things like that, they, they actually go like, wow, I didn't know Wordsworth did that or that's how he thought. Man, that's a cool, I understand that idea. 16 bars, yeah, 16 bars. Yeah, it gets the point across, but it really doesn't allow for elaboration. And I felt um, people need me to elaborate on these things because we have a lot of poets or you know, like a Shakespeare that's done plays and things like that. And we're still questioning what did they mean by something with this way. You don't really have to question it. Definitely. And and what I also loved is, I mean, all the tour pictures, like the South Africa tour, you got, you know, DP1 and, and EMC and, and, you know, you got pictures with Breeze, um, Breezely Bruin. I mean, there's lots of great shots in there, too, and, and just experiences. I mean, to be able to bring that to fans, I think, is really valuable. I mean, what how impactful was that South Africa trip? Because you focus on that a lot in um new beginning and you know, I just want to hear your thoughts on just how impactful that specific tour was for you and, and your career. Well, it South Africa is like one of my favorite places in the world because it was so welcoming when I got there and everybody treated me like they knew me for years. You know, they took me everywhere around the country. You know, I wanted to go, I needed to go and, took care of me so I felt like like home yeah so it felt it felt like home being there it felt like home and um when I got there what what made me really melt and melt um um that's the word I'm saying like uh I don't want to say melt but um weld weld with it and bond yeah weld what made me really weld with it was really the fact that um they gave me the backstories of like apartheid and I could ask questions about things that I always wanted to know because we see things on TV, but like they were able to give me a lot of the experiences and things like that. And and it brought, it made me really um, understand what, what life is like for people in another part of the world, especially what it's like in South Africa. And they hear some of the stories and they go to the Hector Peterson Museum it just gave me another perspective on how fortunate we are over here. Um, and then also, you know, seeing that they were able to also evolve from that. So like going to the mall and rhyming at a radio station and things like that, because people have a misconception of South Africa, right? So people see movies, TV shows, and, uh, you know, the misconceptions 
um, I think have plagued people from other countries that think when you go over there, it's going to be like um, some like wild safari type of things like that. Like there's no city or something like that. Like there's no homes and things like that. But they have pretty much everything you have where you are. You know, like there's a mall, there's a radio station, there's um studio, there's pretty much everything. They got TV shows. So there's so many misconceptions. And being there, the love that they showed me from performing and doing things all the time, um, it was just, it's incredible, man. So it, it made it left a huge impact on me because a lot of that history of apartheid is actually in color and, and current. You know, it's 90s, a lot of that stuff was going on, you know, early 90s, 80s, and so on. So it's not it's not like um, something that we can't see that's not documented or is documented in a, in a form of it's written down or pictures are drawn. This is documented videotape, audio recordings, you know, news channel. I mean, this is vivid, upfront, close and personal. So um, it really, it really just um, you know set set like set in stone in my heart to really cherish um, being this from a you know descendant of, of Africa and things of that nature. No doubt. And, you know, between teaching and the pandemic, obviously you haven't been able to get out on the road a lot. Where do you really want to get to or get back to as soon as you can travel again? It's safe to and, you know, you're not in session with school. Well, I typically do shows while I'm at you know, um, in Florida, man, and that, I love going to Orlando doing shows. That's one of my favorite places to go. You know, I got a lot of friends there, and Orlando is a big city, so whenever I'm able to go there and do shows, it's it's pretty much local because I'm in Florida, but then also it's a big city, and I love that big city vibe of New York. So I would love to go to Orlando and start start there because it's local. I go there, you know, kind of taking my my little baby steps to go further than North Carolina. I was there last year. I loved it. Um, definitely California. I haven't been to Cali in a long time, so I would love to do something in California, New York. I mean, Virginia, all over, wherever wherever I'm welcome. I would just love to do that, but. I think starting in Orlando will give me that, like, okay, we're back. We're back, you know? We're back. No doubt. And, you know, in the past couple of years, there's been such an increase in podcasts. And it's great because there's so much more access to artists and we get to hear so many more stories. But there's also a lot of these podcasts are really rooted in nostalgia and really going back and, like, you know, tell about the Lyricist Lounge days, tell me about the early days. Um, what's your balance in terms of wanting to go back and really reminisce on your history, which is, you know, so rich, especially in that, like that mid to late nineties, New York, you know, underground scene with, you know, Lyricist Lounge and all these other showcases and, and spots like New York, but also like wanting to say like, Hey, I'm still putting out relevant music today. And I don't want to just talk about the past like that. You know, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's funny you say that. I just was playing like the new album to my brother-in-law and he's of, of this generation. So he's like 27. He's of this generation. You could say pretty much a, a little bit, you know, older than maybe this generation in a way. But um, I'm playing him songs that that uh, that he loves because it sounds just as current as what's going on now. And then I play him songs that 
I make sure I represent the people that's followed me and been around. So it's really just being aware and making sure that um, I keep the skill set of whatever's going on because I am a company, I am my brand. And if you're a company or a brand, right, so let's say, for instance, you're doing interviews, right? Interviews and journalism started with, you know, paper and pencil, right? Let's say that. Paper and pencil. Then somebody came with a tape recorder. Then now you got cameras on the phone. Now, if you were still doing paper and pencil and was out there in the locker rooms or wherever you were interviewing and you doing journalism, how long would it take you to jot down these answers, right? So, you know, you, you got to kind of be willing to change and adapt with the times. So for me, it's just always about adding a new tool to my tool shed and making sure I don't lose the integrity of the lyrics and um, what people expect to hear from me. So my content still stays in the realm of um, storytelling and things that are relatable. You know, I don't go outside outside of my boundaries of what I don't have, what I haven't experienced. So I just try to keep it within the realms of reality in my life. No doubt. And, and I guess the other part I was getting at was like, how much, you know, do you want to talk about your history in the game versus talking about your, you know, in, in, in interviews versus talking about and really being able to focus on the new music and, and the new writing? Because I know like you've got a lot of other writing projects in the works besides, um, you know, the behind the scenes and the lyrics and, and albums um, and being able to focus on new projects. Because what, what I've heard a lot of is how many um, podcast interviewers really want to kind of live in the past and really like recount you know, stories from like, you know, the 2000s, you know, the 90s. Um, and, and artists don't always get the chance to really talk about, you know, what they're working on pre- in, the, in the present day, or it's more kind of like an afterthought. Yeah, I, I like talking about the past. I love it. You know, uh, if you if you ask me a question about the past, I'm fine with talking about Lewis's lounge days and and things like that. I think I've embraced that. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that because I, I identify my role of where I am now. I feel like I'm more in a, in a role of a coach player, right? So, like, I can still play the game, but I'm really at a stage of, like, coaching. In order to coach and help teach other people, you have to have some experience, right? So I don't never shun my experiences from those days. I love it. Those are my experiences which allow me to be where I am now to help others and teach or, or coach and, and, and still do what I need to do. If I need to do music or make music, I'm still able to do it. So it's really if I'm asked the questions. If I'm asked the questions about it, I, I love to talk about it. If, if I'm not asked the questions about it, then I really don't, don't talk about it, you know. But I don't, I don't, look, I don't look into um, finding ways to bring it up necessarily. You know, I kind of just go with whatever the interviewer is helping to take the discussion and, and I go from there. But um, I'm fine either way. No doubt. That's dope. I mean, when you also look at, you know, the music that you've made over the years, you know, fans can gravitate towards very specific projects, whether it's your work with EMC or Mirror Music or the work with Punchline, you know. Um, how do you, you know, focus on giving fans what they want? And, and saying, like, you know, this is what I know you've come to expect from Wordsworth, but also, like, this is what I'm working on now, and, 
you know, love it or hate it, this is this is where I'm at, and this is really what represents me now. I mean, do you find there's a big, you know, difference between, um, you know, music from the past and the present, and and showing that kind of growth? No, I think I think what I've recognized is production is first, hook is second, and then lyrics is third, as in the order of importance. So that's what allows me to stay what um, putting music out at a high capacity is because um, I make sure producers and, and production is, is, is tight first. And then that allows it to bring the best out of me and then making sure, you know, the chorus is going to be tight to make sure people like the song or listen to the song or whatever the case over and over, but then also the lyrics after that. Um, so I just have that model of just making sure, um, I seek and sought out some of the best producers I know, you know, and then, you know, uh, that's, it's dope when I'm asked to rhyme on some of the best producer stuff as well. So vice versa, but it's definitely, um, you know, finding that production is, it, it allows me to, to maintain and, and keep the career going. If, you know, if you don't have, you can't have the ego of, I, I don't have the ego of how nice I am rapping. You know, I my my ego would stand on how nice am I putting the song together, and the way I compose compi- comprise these songs and put them together is by, um, will somebody relate to this thought, right? So, I, I I use this like it's like saying if um, uh, you know if you if you hit your toe on on the bed, right? A lot of people have hit their toe or stumped their toe. To me that's something relatable that everybody can relate to. I'm going to rap about it. I'm going to storytell about it, you know? So I try to find common, common themes and common stories that people relate to. And those things are forever. And, and I try to reflect not only at my age. I don't try to think of what I'm doing at my age. I try to think of what I've done at different stages and ages of my life. So I think that helps too, right? So I might write a song about, something that was going on when I was 25, but knowing another 25-year-old kid right now can relate. Then I may write a song about something that's going on right now that, you know, a person at my age can relate to that's my age. So I'm all over the spectrum. It all depends on what the beat tells me what to do. That's awesome. So what have you been working on lately that you really can't wait to let your fans hear? This next album is going to be Kells with the Heat. And it's uh, just uh, an album that is it's a solo album. Um, I actually got, got it. It's being mixed right now. started getting it mixed by um, Jordan River Recordings. They're mixing it. Um, so I just actually was listening to one of the songs mixed in the car about an hour ago. I was excited to hear, hear it come out. Um, and it's a, like a real important song. It's actually the last song on the album, man. Um, so that's what I'm excited about. I have a project with Superstition as well. So hopefully that, that'll that come out sooner than later. Um, and, you know, shout to him because he, he was dealing with COVID from what I saw him post online. So I'm glad he's all right. Um, you know, um, so that's, and then and then the next book, you know, the volume two, and some other things as well in the works. I wrote a musical. I would like that to get going. But what I realized is, like, 
I have all these ideas, but I have to kind of stay executing one at a time, but because they all complement each other. So, you know, I finish the album, I get the album out in the next month or two, hopefully, and then the book is be ready around there. And then from the book, then that goes into this, and then, you know, so it's an avalanche, a snowball, um, and I just try to make sure I give enough attention to each thing. But the next album, yeah, it's produced by Kells with the Heat. I'm, I'm still kind of up in the air with the title, and um, but I'm excited about it, man, because what I'm rhyming about, you know, what I'm what I'm talking about, man. You know, there's a, there's a song on there I'm sure you're going to love, man. I, you know, I got to send you some of the music so you can check it out. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. And Superstition is someone who you obviously both go really well together. You've been on a ton of songs together as, you know, featured MCs. One that, you know, notably comes to mind is Trifactor with, you know, PH, Pumpkinhead. And so I, last time we spoke, you were just kind of working on that album, but now you're saying it's finished, you know. Um, how did that album come out? Like, 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 what do you, what do you, how are you feeling about that project right now? Yeah, I think it was, it was close to finish. I'm not sure if it's finished right now because time has gone by. So, you know, when you revisit some stuff, you'd be like, oh, that one there, we should do another one of these. So as time goes by, it may change some things like that, but I feel excited about the content on it, man. And then like, it's dope to rap on a project with, with another MC caliber of rhyming and just lyricism. So like when me and Pro Gates did the Champion Sounds album with Quincy Tones, it was dope because you know, they gave the dope rapping and they dope singing. I'm like, man, so he, that's me. I'm with Pennywise. So it's, it's just dope working with somebody that, you know, is just as equally creative and and willing to put 110 percent into a project you know and you know you look at guys like superstition i mean what mcs are out there that really bring out the best in you and really make you go back and really make sure that every line is hitting the way it's supposed to i think really the way i go about it is whatever i'm writing if i heard somebody say it on stage Fire. If I write something down that somebody else would say, and it's not something that would make me go wild, then I, I don't think it's fire. So that's how I look at it. If I write a line and I heard it from somebody else, what I say, that's fire. That's how, that's how I do it. Um, right now, I like hearing Benny the Butcher, though. I like hearing Conway. You know, I can hear them rhyme, and, and I'm like, wow, let me let me go write some stuff and get excited. Still hearing Jada Kids, some of these artists, I just love hearing them rhyme on uh, the wordplay. This, so, but that's how I kind of gauge what gets me excited with writing. It's like, when I say this on stage, are people going to be like, that's crazy, I wish I thought of that. Um, if it's something that I'm looking, I hear, I picture somebody saying on stage, and I would be like, that's regular, then I know that's not a go. And we never hear it. It just goes. It just gets erased. Um. Yeah. Pretty much, man. Well, some lines just fall to like my. It's like a like you'll see if you've seen a lot of if you've seen a line of mine written that I've written or typed up. I would say all my rhymes, um, at the bottom of it has a whole bunch of lines that never make it. A whole bunch of rhymes. It's they're just there. 
And do you feel like over time, do you get more selective? Do you feel like you're getting better? Like, how do you feel like, you know, you've, you're growing with age? I think, think I have a standard of lyricism where I'm at with it and I don't fall below that bar. So as far as getting better, better song making, but I think better songs are driven by maybe better production and then better ideas. But I feel like um, I'm, I'm maintaining the integrity of who I am with making music. And, you know, I might run into that beat one day, and it's like, you know, that beat right there. And the way that, but I just make sure all of them are the one. You know, that's all I try to do, man, is just make sure all of them are the one and they reflect for different people. So, yeah, so I don't, I don't expect you to like every song I do. I expect you to like um, the songs. I expect you to like the songs that you relate to. So I don't think every album I hear all the time, I relate to every song. I may find that song cool, like, yeah, that's a good song. But um, as far as, like, me being able to, like, say, ah, that song made me feel a certain... There's some songs that empathize with what I deal with, but then there's some songs that are just good songs that I enjoy hearing hearing them sonically. So that's what I mean by that. So um, I just try to make sure I make a great sonic, sonically sounding album, and hopefully all the songs resonate. But if not, there's a song, two or three, on there that really pulls at your heartstrings or really empathize with what you got going on. And, you know, you've also written, you know, a play and you've written a lot of stuff besides just music or the, you know, the behind the scenes to the lyrics, like what words are worth the, you know, the first volume, what else have you written and where does that versatility for you as a writer come from? Um, I'm just, uh, well, I think really, uh, that's really I've I've really just written music, you know, poems and uh you know, the book, the you know, scripts and really for me it's really I think I'm not afraid to try it and then the positions I will put I was put into, so like when I went on TV, I learned because we were writing rhymes, but then when you do a table read, you know, and everybody sitting at the table, they have to so then I'm observing that. So I get the script and then I'm like, wow, okay, this is how this goes. So then I'm, you know, I think my curiosity helps me a lot. I think the fact that I'm curious to learn how other forms of writing works, that's what keeps me um, engaged and wanting to do the next thing, like wanting to do a novel, wanting to do a, a story, wanting to do a kid's book. Because I'm engaged in the fact of just like, storytelling and feeling I have something to say in a different way than I haven't presented yet. That's awesome. No, it's, it's, it's great to see that. And, and, and I'm excited for all these other projects that you have coming out. And, you know, I know you're also a huge NBA fan. I mean, right now we're looking at the season. I mean, you know, Brooklyn Nets are, have definitely come on strong since adding James Harden. Um, a lot of contenders, hard to tell what the Lakers are going to do with, you know, AD and LeBron and their injuries, but what are you thinking right now is going to be um, a likely championship, you know, match, you know, um, at the end of the season? Man, I, I think 
I think you will get. I think Brooklyn's gonna be there at the end. I think maybe Brooklyn Clippers though. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but I, I kind of feel Brooklyn Clippers. I will. I will prefer Brooklyn Lakers, but I think Brooklyn Clippers just based on the fact that Anthony Davis. I don't think is gonna be healthy during the playoffs. I think. I think if he gets one little nick, I think he's kind of like running those playoffs, man. So uh, I don't know if he's, he can sustain. Uh, with that, with that injury, man, that, that's a serious injury when you're a big man. Um, but that's that's kind of why I think I see it going. This clip is next. I mean, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen with that Clippers team, in a sense, because Paul George, you know, since being lost pandemic P last year, he has a lot to prove. <laughs> you know, like he's he definitely did not live up to the the payday he got to go to L. A. And, you know, Kawhi also leaving Toronto and and things falling way short, you know, to Denver last year. I mean, I feel like they have a lot to prove this year. Yeah, yeah. I think Paul just has, has – man, he's been under a lot of pressure for years, you know. Like, he's he's been a – yeah, you know. You know, it's funny because I, I think about that all the time. Just off the, you know, I was talking to my father-in-law the other day. I was like, "Man, Steph Curry hit 105 threes. What kind of locked in are you have to be? You know what I'm saying? Like, you would think Paul George's talent would get him there, but the mindset is just has to be of another level, man. You know, because if you if you get thrown off any little inkling of anything, man, it's it's a done deal. So um, that's the one thing I like about a LeBron is like LeBron. Yes, he he's made it to the final. I mean, he made it to the finals consecutive for years, and he's lost some. Yes, but the mindset to take the loss and come back and make it back, that's the mindset you need to have. Paul George, I think, gets frazzled with the mindset of he missed, he's bad, he's off, he's off. He's just out of there. Like so, mindset I think plays a, a huge key into it. And this is where we're going to see if James Harden's mindset matches his maturity. I think mindset with Oklahoma. So now I think he has the mindset. We know Durant has the mindset. We know Kyrie has the mindset. So if 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 um, Harden doesn't have that and Paul George doesn't have the mindset of having a bad game and recovering or missing a few shots and recovering, it's going to plague them down the line. No, for sure. And if you were really to think about your career as an MC, what NBA player do you think your career most resembles past or present? I would say my career presently would maybe resemble, um, I would say maybe Tyron Lue, as far as because of the coaching, taking a team to a championship, doing something that nobody's ever done in that city. I feel like I'm, I'm, I was, I've, I've been a player all these years. But my skills allow me to still maintain to the point that I can take a team to the championship. I can still win. Also, Doc Rivers is another person I like to have that mindset. Now, Rivers didn't win a ring as a as a player, won the ring as a coach. So um, 
I think my mindset is more of a coach um, rather than player. But player wise, I would say, I would say similar to, uh, I would say uh, a LeBron for me because, like I said, I know I'm there, and even if I get there and it doesn't work out, I know I'm coming back. I don't, I don't think I'm coming back like on some. I don't know, maybe, maybe I don't have a maybe, I have a okay. That that route then I'll be back next year. Let's see if we can do it again. So I'll be definitely that's my mindset with it is being able to accept some failures as lessons as opposed to losses. No, that that's awesome. And when you talk about being that coach for younger artists, I mean, what's the best advice and the most important advice young artists should have in twenty twenty one? The the best advice I would say is make sure you register uh, with a performing rights organization first. Um, put out put out your music and try everything. You know, try try a try a trap record. Try try a, a drill sound. Try an EDM sound. Try everything. Now, when you're trying those things and that sound doesn't necessarily mean you have to have that content of what maybe that sound so if, if a lot of drill music may deal with you know whatever violence or whatever case or hip-hop music with violence and yeah you do rap but you don't have to rap on some violent stuff right so but those sounds try those sounds because those sounds will push your pen to get different flows and different ways to engage listeners so i may do a show and in the middle of my show i may me. I may have it because people hype, and then I do my thing to it. So feel feel empowered to try everything. No, that, that's great advice, not just you know as an artist, but just for anybody in life, really. I mean, I think that's the way we really grow as people. Yeah, I think I think that hindered I think hurt the the growth of a lot of '90s artists because in the '90s we were so much against the commercial rap that artists, instead of watching and learning how to write those commercial songs, they were against it that as the game evolved to be more commercialized, then they hurt their, their bottom line because they didn't learn how to adapt to write songs for movies and TVs and other things. They kind of shunned it. So now, you know, their skill set stayed with the same tool set you know, and you got to make sure you're grabbing and buying new tools. You got to make sure your tool set. Somebody needs a ratchet, it's there. If somebody needs a hammer, it's there. So I look at every song and every opportunity that I feel like I can always go into my tool shed for any song you need me to do. If it's R&B, country, EDM, I feel like I can listen to anything and then figure it out and go on my tool shed and be like, ah, this is what we need. Nah, don't hand me that one. Hand me that one over there. <laughs> you know, like... I feel like that's what I can do mentally. 